This is the Sermon Smith Podcast. Sermon Smith is a bi-weekly conversation about the craft of sermon preparation, and my name is John Chandler. Have a unique format of a show today. I actually interviewed a previous guest, but I did not interview this previous guest about his own Sermon Smith. This idea came into my inbox via J.R. Briggs. J.R. was the very first interview on Sermon Smith, Sermon Smith number one. And he's a good friend, and we keep in touch. Uh, he's tossing me Sermon Smith ideas and thoughts all the time. And he had one he had been reading, uh, a book called Lectures to My Students by Charles Spurgeon, where he talks a lot about his own sermon prep process from decades and decades and decades ago. And J.R. suggested, well, maybe that could be somehow a topic for the show. And I said, well, good. Why don't you come on the show, be a repeat guest, and talk about it? So that's what's happening here. This is the sermon prep process of C.H. Spurgeon via J.R. Briggs, where J.R. is just going to talk about much of what he has gleaned from the book. I hope it's helpful for you. It's certainly a fascinating conversation. One other note before we get into it, if you're finding the podcast helpful, I hope you'll consider supporting it on patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com. You can go to patreon.com slash sermonsmith where you can pledge a dollar or $2 or $10, whatever uh, works in your budget per episode that just helps support the costs for the server and for my time and all that as I continue to hope to see this expand into some other things. So that's patreon.com slash sermonsmith. That being said, let's get into this conversation with Charles Spurgeon, VJR Bruce. JR, it is it's good to have you back on the podcast. You were the first ever Sermonsmith guest. Yeah, thanks for, for having me back. And uh, John, I was just thinking this week as I was prepping for Sunday sermon, and I said out loud in Starbucks yesterday, man, preaching is hard. <laughs> and it just made me think, knowing we'd be meeting today, what a great resource this is. So thanks for what you're doing, putting this podcast together, because preaching really is hard. So it's good to be back with you. And thanks for having me. Yeah, it's good to have you back. And so I'll give a little background of what's happening here is um, your sermon uh, prep has changed so much. No, I'm, that's not what we're doing. <laughs> so the, the background of this, and JR, I will say this, you've probably given me more ideas um, for Sermon Smith. You probably email me once every month or two and say, hey, have you thought about, you know, doing, and so I appreciate that. You're you're an invested first-time guest. Hmm. Invested from seventy three, I think. I think this is number seventy four. So invested from seventy three ago. But why don't you briefly, even though we're not really going to talk about you today, which I'm sure you're thankful for, um, even though. But why don't you briefly just give a refresher of your context where you're at, just for the the framing of the conversation. Sure. Yep. I'm on the the north side of Philadelphia uh, here in a place called Lansdale, Pennsylvania. And it's uh, it's a community of about 16,000 people, but within a 10-mile radius, we have over a million people. So it's sort of this big and small dynamic. And I'm the pastor of an almost eight-year-old church called the Renew Community. And uh, we have been in existence from the beginning uh, in an attempt to help people who are both hungry and hurting. And we seem to attract lots of those people. And, and our staff are filled with people who are both hungry and hurting. So it works out well. Um, and uh, we're a community trying to be on mission. We're part of the Ecclesia Network, which, unfortunately, we get a chance to share that with uh, with you, John, and your community down there yeah. in Austin. And, um, yeah, so I've been here, yeah, almost eight years. And and what's happening today is you're actually, you're not going to talk about your sermon prep. You're going to channel <laughs> Charles Spurgeon. Um, you're going to do a book report. That's what's going on here. <laughs> well, hopefully it's a glorified book report slash amazing implications into us today, even though it's 125 years later. So so you picked up this book. Tell us a little bit. Well, tell us, tell us what the book is and tell us how you came across this book. Yeah, I certainly was very familiar with Charles Spurgeon, at least somewhat. Uh, I like most preachers or pastors. Call him Chuck. Uh, <laughs> uh, Reverend Spurgeon to me. So, no. And, uh, and I always held him in high regard, but, you know, 125 years ago, there's a lot of good preachers out there. And But I picked up this book at a, a seminary uh, used books sale, and uh, I saw a hardback book published, a Zondervan book, 1975, called Lectures to My Students by Charles Spurgeon. And I thought, for 50 cents, I'll, I'll, I'll take a risk on this and pick it up. And, Maybe Spurgeon has something to say. Yeah. <laughs> but it sat on my shelf for probably... 
three years or so. I didn't touch it, not because I didn't think it was good. I just had other books going on. Happened to pick it up just a few months ago, and my goodness, I just got 50 pages in and thought this is just worth its weight in gold. And it it uh, it's basically, you know, he was the president of a college, and uh, that's later been turned into after his death called Spurgeon College. And it basically was, is if I could crashly put it this way, what I know now in ministry that I wish I knew when I was studying to be in ministry like you pastors to be in seminary. And so he unpacks all that, obviously being known as the Prince of Preachers. He spends a lot of that time talking about preaching, preaching preparation, how to articulate, how to keep people's attention, um, how to pick a text, how to pray. But he also goes through a great deal. I mean, he struggled with depression for years and years. And he called them uh, fainting fits, uh, the minister's fainting fits. And so how do you, as a minister, how do you still minister when you're struggling with depression? How do you preach with confidence and passion when you struggle with depression? Uh, he talked about how to carry on conversation when you were, quote unquote, off duty or out of the pulpit uh, in just everyday conversation. Um, and I just appreciated that. But the bulk of it talks about uh, how he was sermon smithing. And I, I think originally when I sent you the email, I, I said, uh, have you ever thought about this book? Have you ever thought about doing a book review in the sense on the Prince of Preachers in his own preparation? Because there's a lot there. And I think you just turned it right back on me and said, well, why don't you come back on? And why don't you <laughs> help exactly us what I did. talk about this? And uh, and I gratefully uh, glad to do so because it's uh, it's an amazing book. He's an amazing preacher. And there were things that I knew about him but finding out through this book, I didn't know and came to appreciate even more what I did know about him. And I mean, I, I would say he's become one of my ministry heroes and somebody I need to be reading even more so because that's how much of an impact this book has had on me. And I would call it the book of the year for me in 2016 thus far, even though we're not even uh, fully through the year yet. I mean, so much so I'm thinking about ordering a Spurgeon is my homeboy t-shirt kind of thing because <laughs> he's just really climbing the ranks of my respect for him. So. so uh... Uh, when I was when you sent this to me, I looked, you know, and there's a lot of Kindle versions of the book, cheap ones because it's public domain. But I noticed some of them were letters to my students, volume one through three, or just vol like. Do you know which one particularly you have? Is it a collection of all the volumes, or do you have yeah, any idea? It should be all of them that I have together yeah. in its original format, and uh, and it certainly is a very very thick book. I mean, uh, you know, it's over 400 pages, but. Uh, I find myself uh, late into the night going, man, I should go to bed, but, but one more chapter um, mm. because it really is is gripping. And it's not every day that you read something 125 years old that you can immediately draw conclusions to and implications to how it will impact your life this week. And for that, I'm really grateful with the way in which not only he preached, but even the way he taught others and other pastors how to preach. It was that simple and that clear and that straightforward. So a lot of us might be familiar with Spurgeon in name. Um, I, you know, I remember that back in my cigar smoking days, you know, that was one yeah. of the things is we felt like we were affiliating ourselves with Spurgeon. But that's pretty much all I knew about him was he was a preacher who smoked cigars and that felt made it feel OK. Uh, but tell us a little bit more. I mean, you, you kind of gave a quick overview, but you, you mentioned that his life was kind of surprising in all the things that he did. That's that's almost a paraphrased direct quote from what you said in your email to me. I assume the book covers a little bit more of his life. Is, was there Were there other details of his life that you thought were kind of standout that might be helpful for us as context? Yeah, you know, I didn't actually find a lot about his life. I think um, people may assume a lot going in, but just brief sketch of his life. And it's uh, he has an autobiography, which I haven't read yet, but totally want to in the near future, because the more I find out about him, the more fascinated I am about him. There was a great article that I, I found online, um, very simply uh, titled Six Ways to Prepare Sermons Like Charles Spurgeon. And they give a really good, simple, brief sketch of his life. And you know, he was a husband. He's a father. He was an evangelist, of course, known as the Prince of Preachers. Um, he authored dozens of books. Most people don't know he was also a strong abolitionist. He came after William Wilberforce, but he spoke so boldly against slavery that while his sermons sold, I mean, he would publish his sermons, they'd be sold for a penny each and were widely distributed and published as soon as he came out very strongly against slavery as an abolitionist the sales of his 
sermons for a penny that had been so widely uh, purchased plummeted because of this uh, unfavorable stance that he took. And so most people don't know about about Spurgeon, the abolitionist, but he also became a college president and uh, you know a lecturer at that at that school. Um, he founded sixty six different ministries in uh, in London. Um, just amazing ministry that he was doing to the poor, um, to different classes, to different segments of the working uh, society. Um, but he wasn't really known as being a very um, he wasn't a high-end preacher. In fact, he brought the cookies to the bottom shelf intentionally, and the working class loved him. The uh, the unintelligent or the illiterate really found his sermons to be clear, and I think that's why there was such a, a, a draw of the masses to him, because it didn't require a dictionary. In fact, that was one of his quotes. He said, no man should preach uh, other than people longing to reach for their Bible, not for a dictionary. And um, he was he was very humorous. His illustrations were just taken from history as well as his own life, as well as things that would relate to everyone there. Um, he, he, he may be called the Prince of Preachers, but I want to call him the master of the metaphor. Um, that man on every page of every one of his sermons has unbelievable mastery of using metaphors, illustrations, and stories to drive home deep theological doctrines and and points that uh, might feel dry or theoretical. He just does a great job bringing that home. So that's a little bit about his life. He was a great husband. He was a, a great uh, father. His son took over after him of the the, the um, church that he was a pastor of for quite some time. There are no audio recordings. Uh, we just barely sure. missed uh, that. But his son preached the last sermon that he ever preached from the pulpit of the church and was asked by a phonograph company, can we come in and record you on our phonograph equipment, which was so cutting edge at the time. So you can actually find online his son, which they said, if you closed your eyes, sounded exactly like his dad <laughs> in his tone, his volume, his intonation, his pace. So if you actually want to get a piece of what Charles Spurgeon sounded like, you won't be able to hear him, but you can hear his son preach uh, at the church and from the pulpit where Spurgeon did. And they said it was just identical. So Anyway, just some interesting things about his own life. Two quick stories. You mentioned cigars. Uh, in fact, one time while he was preaching, there was someone, uh, another preacher came and protested uh, outside of his church saying that he was sinful for smoking cigars. And he came out and engaged with him in, in a, a a polite debate. But he was so witty, he said, um, and there were reporters and people listening, and he said, I I just want you to know I plan on smoking my cigar to the glory of God before I retire to bed this evening. And uh, then he went on to say, I've never smoked in excess. And they said to him, how will you know you're smoking cigars in excess? And with a smile on his face, he looked at them and said, when I have two cigars in my mouth at the same time, that's excess. <laughs> and uh, he just had a wit in a way to him. So uh, I, I just appreciate that. That's the first one. But as far as preaching goes, he was so involved in the craft, the, the sermon smithing of preaching, that he said, there's a, a, a famous story of his wife woke up in the middle of the night and heard him talking in his sleep. He was obviously dreaming. And she began to realize he's preaching. So she pulled up a chair and a pen and she dictated, she wrote down everything that he was saying in his dream. And he was preaching out of a psalm. And when he woke up in the morning, she handed him a stack of papers and said, this is what I wrote down when you were preaching in your sleep. He didn't even know he was doing it. He read over the, the notes on the pages and he says, you know, this is good enough to preach. And he ended up preaching it in the next week or two. <laughs> I mean, that's an unbelievable, uh, intensely focused preacher who even dreams and preaches in his dreams. And then it's good enough to be written down and then preach to people when you're awake. That's an unbelievable story. Yeah, it is. I mean, because I mean, my... I mean, I haven't heard myself talk in my sleep, but I'm pretty sure it's nowhere near coherent enough to even write down. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I just love that story. And, you know, one of the one of the things that we understand with him as a preacher uh, is great. But the, the thing that I I have grown to respect him so much is his prayer life. I I don't know if we have scratched the surface on the depth of his prayers. And he actually has a chapter on 
the preacher's private prayer and then our public prayers and when we're praying within a service. And the story has it that there's not a single time throughout his ministry that he preached that he didn't recruit a small group of people to be praying in the other room or in the basement or in a Sunday school classroom at the very same time praying and interceding for him while he preached. Should I be surprised then that God used him so dramatically if he elevated prayer and intercession to such a level that God would just pour out his spirit on his hearers and even in his own preparation? And I just, uh, I'm amazed by the amount of prayer um, that he put into before, during, and after his preaching. What, uh, uh, I want to dig on that a little bit more, but I, it, it just raised a question for me, which was, what tradition did he come from? Yes, he is claimed by the Reformed Baptists. So he's definitely Reformed. Now, the Reformed Baptists today are a little bit different than what they were 125 years ago. And again, he's coming from England, um, but he clearly was in the Reformed Baptist tradition. And um, in fact, Southwestern uh, Baptist Theological Seminary, I think in Kansas City, they actually have the Spurgeon Center there. About 10 years ago, they bought all of his, or most of his sermons, all the pa- sermon papers, hmm. for about $400,000. And you can actually go there and explore, and they've got a little center there. And so the Reformed Baptists really like to claim him as their own, but he really is across many different denominations. Yeah, sure. Um, so, yeah, I chuckled when you sent me this about the you, you know you sent me notes on what you were interested in talking about that really stood out to you and you said you typed and this is a typo I'm sure but you said his prayer like was amazing and I think you meant to say his prayer life was amazing life. but I'm just yes. yes his prayer like was amazing that's kind of how I'm reading it <laughs> yes uh, his prayer I, life was amazing some somewhat by design we don't usually actually talk about the prayer as the prep just because I've tried to keep sermon smith more on the practical side certainly people refer to it some but uh I I talk more about that talk more about like you talked about people praying for him but what is what was prayer as part of his sermon prep process Yeah I mean he was very strong about this with his students he said if you don't pray you disqualify yourself from ministry and he went on to say if you don't pray you not only should be pitied as a pastor, you should be shamed. And then he said, your congregation should be pitied if you do not have a regular and intense and deep uh, time of personal prayer as a preacher. Even your congregation should be felt sorry for, which I thought was very interesting. And again, he's so great at these one-liners, these punchy sentences that are so weighty. It's why he dominates Twitter. And I, I highly recommend anyone listening who's engaged in this conversation and is intrigued by it, to, there are two main Spurgeon Twitter accounts. And every just you know day or two, they'll tweet out a few things. So powerful, so truthful, so punchy and memorable. And here's one of them. He said, libraries and studies are emptiness compared to our closets. And then he went on to say, your closet is your best study. And um, I'm not, what he's getting at is a prayerless preacher, is a careless preacher. And he even said, if your prayers feel stale, pastor, go on a prayer retreat for a week. And if you need to go on a prayer retreat for a month and don't come back until that prayer life has been stoked. And um, he ends by saying, our silence might be better than our voices if our solitude were spent with God. Um, He was really passionate about this. And ironically, I mean, when it comes to public prayer, which is the next chapter in the book that he talked about, he was adamantly against liturgy. Um, he felt like liturgy strips it uh, of its of its passion and its life. And so he even said, don't pray at the same part of the service. Mix it up. Mix up your liturgy. Uh, mix up the way you do things so that it doesn't feel so rote or predictable. But he went on to say, never write a written, like never have a written prayer. Never write it down. It'll take the life out of it. But he said, never go into a prayer without preparing for it in your private prayer life. So I think what he's saying is prepare, but don't plan. Prepare, but don't write it out ahead of time. But you should be so uh, engaged in prayer in your private prayer closet that it should spill out into these wonderful prayers in the pulpit. So what did he... You've got me curious. Like when he had... I don't know if he did manuscripts or outlines or what that looked like. 
would he get to a point where he'd just have pray here, and but there wouldn't be any sort of written prayer, even though he might have all sorts of detail for the sermon? Yeah, great question. He actually had like a time of prayer during the service marked out. Like, so it wasn't just pray before, during, or after a sermon, but it was an actually the time of prayer, the pastoral prayer during the service. And what he said is, don't let that prayer go longer than 10 minutes. And he, he, uh, he, he, he said, never grovel during that time. He said, soar and mount during that time of prayer, but only do it for 10 minutes. It's not sermon one, and then you get to do sermon two. Uh, he said, hmm. don't make a prayer into a sermonette. Um, preach the sermon, but pray the prayer is the way he put it. And so it's a de- the time devoted to pray. And I, I don't know if that was sort of a warm up or to kind of thaw our hearts to be ready and open for, but it wasn't a 30 second deal. And he said, preachers don't go on and on in your prayers either. In fact, he railed against people that repeat spiritual words endlessly, right? So for us today, it'd be like, dear father, Lord, father, we just pray father that you would help us father. And he just railed against those particular phrases and saying, God doesn't need to hear his name repeated like that over and over, and neither do your people. So he just said, think very purposefully about your prayers. Don't go on and on, um, and don't pray long in public. He distinctly said, no more than 10 minutes, and he said the sermon should be like 40 to 45 minutes, but don't let the prayer be more than more than 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. Um and um, prepare for it in private so that it will spill over in public. And he, he went on at the end of the chapter to say, the sermon can be below the mark, but the prayer must always be above the mark. Never let your sermon let people, uh, your sermon can let people down, but never let your prayer life, your prayer on Sunday morning, let people down. And he went on to say something that is kind of surprising for the Prince of Preachers to say, but he said, your prayer life on Sunday morning should take more effort and intention than your sermon prep. I mean, this is a man who cares about prayer when he says that, and he's known as the Prince of Preachers. Sure. Um, what, would you, what would you say his understanding of the role of the sermon was? Kind of in light of that, you know, like he puts this big emphasis on the prayer, but he's known as the Prince of Preachers. Did did he have a general philosophy of preaching that comes through on what he was hoping to accomplish with his sermons? Yeah, in fact, one of the main chapters that he has towards the end of the book called On Conversion as Our Aim. So he was always trying to convert the head and the heart and the hands, uh, not just for first-time salvations, as we'd put it in our vernacular today, but of converting people away from their own lives and onto this really high view of God. So conversion was always what he was after. And yes, Not like it was a 19th some, century revival come just as you are, but like con, continuing conversion. Yes. Say. Yes. Continuing conversion. And he, he, he said, if, if he said the first time a preacher doesn't end up talking about Jesus in his sermon should be his last. So he always made his way to end up back at who Jesus was. Even Old Testament, he's able to trace that back because he knew that the life, death, and resurrection, as we do, is the most important thing. And he said, pity, pity the preacher who preaches an entire sermon and never ends up at Jesus. Um, so those are some of his huge aim, aims. And uh, conversion as his aim certainly was one of those. And he talked about the distractions that get in the way uh, not just the preparation, but even the delivery of it that can get in the way for that and things to, I mean, he even went into specific detail in this of how to take care of your throat. I mean, he talked about cayenne peppers. You know, if you've got a sore throat, chew on some cayenne peppers to help loosen up some of the phlegm and uh, keep some water. And, and I even forget the other liquid that he said, I always have that within hand reach to be able to uh, to use that should I, and he said, you know, clear your throat before you get up on uh, into the pulpit, but don't clear your throat if you can help it when you're in the pulpit. Just very specific to his students on, on even like how to carry yourself, how to stand, how to stand up, never lean on the podium um, because your diaphragm is, is compressed. Um, so people can hear you. Remember the, the amplification isn't what it was today. So speak loudly. He'd walk through the auditorium beforehand and he would check his voice in the empty room 
to find out how loud he needed to be and at what pitch so that everyone would be able to hear him and it wouldn't be distracting for people trying to strain to listen in to what he was saying. I mean, this guy had incredible preparation to his sermons. Let's talk, let's talk then about even the, besides, besides that stuff, like his actual weekly habits, you know, that we try to talk about on Sermon Smith. Uh, what does, does he describe, like, how he, how far in advance he worked on his sermons? Uh, I assume if he was Reformed Baptist and did not like liturgy, he probably didn't follow the lectionary, safe to say. Um, <laughs> so what, what was all that process for him? Yeah, yeah. In fact, there's a chapter in there on the choice of a text. How is he picking a text, which I think was really important. But before we get to that, he did say that um, it, it did say that he was, if he were entertaining people on a Saturday night, he wasn't trying to be rude. But at, sharply at six o'clock, he would stand up and he would look at his guests and he say, "Well, this has been wonderful, but it's time for me to say goodbye." Mm-hmm. And he would ask his guests to leave, or he would excuse himself if he was at a guest house. And he would outline his sermon. Now, I don't know if he did that only Saturday night or if he's tightening it up. I I can't quite tell. Again, I'm not a Spurgeon expert, but based on what I can tell in the book is he really did that on Saturday nights and outlined a ton. And he called them skeletons. And uh, at some points of his preaching life, it was just a one-page skeleton, like we we would call them an outline towards, I think, the end of his life, not the beginning of his life, but the end of his life, it ended up being like 13, 14, 15-page drafts of what he would end up saying. So I don't know if that's out of memory or just development or or just what worked for him, but he started with the skeleton and then developed into longer, more, I don't think he manuscripted them out, but in much more detailed notes. And he called them skeletons, and he said, without the Holy Ghost, they will be nothing more than skeletons. And I think what he's implying by that statement is the Holy Spirit is the one. I'll, I'll provide the skeleton, but it's the flesh and the bones and the blood and the movement and the life that actually happens because of the Holy Spirit. I'm just putting the skeletal structure together. And I think that's a really good thing as I think about a dance, this idea of a dance where I'm in partnership with the Holy Spirit. Um, the Holy Spirit is the lead dance partner when I'm putting together a sermon and when I'm delivering it. But... Um, I think he really understood that idea of, I can provide a structure, but Lord, you got to put the life into this to make this worthwhile. And I think that's why he had the prayer group in what he was doing and why he spent so much time in his study in terms of private prayer leading up to that. But it looks like Saturday night was his big prep time and putting those skeletons together. So but so let me make sure I followed what you, I, I don't know if I misunderstood part of that. So you said early in his career, he started with just a skeleton, and later in his career, he was doing the 13, 14, 15 page? Yes, I'm pretty sure of that, because I remember reading it thinking, wouldn't it be the opposite? Wouldn't you yeah, want to manuscript everything, and then as you become more comfortable, you get down to just a small, brief skeleton? But I, I believe, I could be wrong, but I, I, I believe that he started small and then actually developed a bigger outline the older he got, the more he preached, which doesn't make sense. I, I would have guessed the opposite. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I mean, part of part of it, too, in terms of his choice of developing the text, uh, you know, he did, as you said, he didn't follow the lectionary. And he was very clear with his students where he said, beg the Lord to give you the text that you should preach. Beg the Lord. And and sometimes he'd come out of his his study uh, late in the week and maybe even late on Saturday nights and praying. And he'd say to his wife, he called he called his wife wifey. It's kind of an interesting nickname. And he'd say, wifey, the Lord still has yet to reveal to me exactly the text that I should preach on tomorrow. And he's kind of a little bit desperate there as the night's getting so late. So he's, he's on a week-to-week basis. Yeah, yeah. And uh-huh. once it was a, once he received that from the Lord, really clear, he said, then pray over it once it's given to you. And and as you're trying to discern and pray exactly what it is, it isn't just, Lord, give me something. He's also going through, and I thought this was really good. He said, consider, take an audit of the sins that are rife in your church currently. So is it gluttony? Is it gossip? Is it idolatry? So he said, think about the things your church currently is struggling with in terms of sins. And ask the Lord if there's any sermon or text that needs to go to address those particular sins that are strong and noticeable and current in your congregation. 
But he did go on to say later that it is so important that we preach the full range of the scriptures, all parts, not just the fun and easy ones, not just the ones that might, you know, apply to everybody, you know, God's love or God's grace. Those are all important things. But he said, preach the full range of it, the full doctrine from stories to prophets to metaphors to parables to Paul's letters. Preach the whole gospel, preach the whole um, range of scripture. Which I think is a good distinction, too, so that it wasn't just pick and choose or, hey, I think my congregation is really struggling with uh, laziness this week, so I think I'll preach on laziness. So it sounds like it was held in tension of trying to yeah. determine and discern what, what the right topics would be. Yeah, I mean, the devil's advocate slash cynic in me is wanting to go back and, you know, count all of his sermons, what texts, you know, what yeah, areas yeah. he never got to, you know, because if, if I did that on a week-to-week basis, it's, hey, let's turn to Philippians again. You know? <laughs> sure. <laughs> so, but but it's funny, I, you know, I do have uh, in my Bible software, I have a book on Spurgeon's sermon outlines. Oh. And so when I, you know, cross-reference whatever passage I'm looking at, uh, more often than not, there's been a an outline from Spurgeon in there that I could review to see what he did. So he definitely oh. did a, a pretty good range because they're they're certainly in there, at least yeah. maybe of the ones that I've been preaching on anyway. Yeah, and you know, as I mentioned earlier, he's just the master of the metaphor. Here's just an example of that that was just so good. He talked about roasting a sermon like you would a meat at a barbecue. He said, run the spit of memory through it from end to end. Turn it round upon the roasting jack of meditation before the fire of a really warm and earnest heart and in the way the sermon would be cooked and ready to yield great spiritual nourishment. Now, that's a great sentence. <laughs> that's a great image of, of a pig going around on a spit and uh, slow roasting, slow cooking, and then eventually enjoying the meal. And then um, he does it all on Saturday. It's, there's got to be something going on in his brain you know, throughout the week before he gets to that outline on Saturday night. Yeah, there's no doubt of that, because when at the end of the book, when he talks about how he finds illustrations, how he how he knows which anecdotes to use, he goes through very specifically how to find metaphors, how to find illustrations. And you can tell that the ways in which he's he's finding these um, are something that he's doing all the time. I mean, it reminds me of something that Erwin McManus um, talked about. He said, sometimes I'll just lay, lay on my floor on my back for an hour and I will just sermonize and I'll get up and like the sermon will be written. And people say, what, how can you do that? He said, well, I'm writing sermons all the time. I'm writing some sermons I'm giving like nine months from now. I'm re- I'm, I'm doing some prep right now of, of sermons. I don't even know when I'm going to preach them, but I know I will at some point. And I wouldn't be surprised if Spurgeon had a very similar brain uh, to that. But, um, you know, the, the idea of always looking for illustrations, he'd say, when you go to a fair or a carnival, look there, look in the newspaper, think about ancient history. When you go for a walk, he said, if you're feeling stuck, just go for a walk. He even has this one where he says, if you don't know what to do, what illustrations to use, he said, go for a walk and find yourself where there's a knot of people, K-N-O-T, where there's a knot of people and discreetly eavesdrop on the conversation. <laughs> And in the midst of it, don't be surprised if you find a metaphor and illustration to use. And then he goes on to say, which is very powerful, he said, visit the sick. Because in your sacred time of conversation with the, the sick, they have a deep understanding of what's important in life. And he said, you'll find some great illustrations and stories to use by simply being in conversation with those who are unhealthy in the hospital who are infirm and sick. And I thought, man, that's a, that's a, that's a gem right there. That's a gem. What, um, so even the process you're describing is this, you know, what, when it's just kind of this stewing, roasting all week long and then putting it together, was this really how he was teaching his students to do it? That's a great question. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. In fact, coming out of his lectures to his students, right? So, yeah, yeah. I'd love to even know how he prepared to give these lectures to his students, you know, almost like a behind the scenes, behind the curtain kind of thing. Um, That would be fascinating. But I just think his brain worked in such a way from what I can tell, whether it was on the fly conversation with somebody or deep preparation, his mind was always going. He just couldn't turn his mind off because it was always just, especially the metaphors, again, being the master of metaphors, how he is just looking at every situation going, I could preach on that. That's a sermon illustration. And again, as preachers, 
we always say, well, our kids are the, you know, when we have kids, they're the best sermon illustration uh, generator, right? And it's true, but I think he thought about that with all of life, not just children. He just looked at every conversation, every situation, every newspaper article as a potential for how do I clearly communicate the truths of Scripture in a way that people every day will be able to understand them. There's, there's definitely been seasons in my life where when I'm consistently doing some kind of output of the same kind, that the next thing or four things down the road, and this would most likely be like sermons or, you know, Sunday school lessons when I was doing student ministry, where if that was the dominant thing that I was doing in that season of my life, I, I, I would get in a flow similar to what you're talking about, but certainly not, you know, I don't, I don't sustain that over long periods of time, especially, you know, now when you're in senior pastor life and you've got this going and that going, but it almost sounds like he was able to just sustain that continuous flow all the time of my primary calling. My primary role in life is to preach sermons. And so everything I do, you know, is going to be collecting life (laughs) into sermons. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's an, you know, when you're a writer and you're a preacher, you learn to be more attentive to the world in which you live. Sure. And I think that was the case for him. With that being said, though, I mean, it had to be more than Saturday night. I'm, I'm, infer- I'm inferring this right. um, and assuming this because he also consulted commentaries. In fact, he, he wrote a whole book on commentaries called Commenting on Commentaries. And when you write a whole book on commentaries, I mean, that's, that's unbelievable in terms of sermon prep, you know. Yeah. And, and John Calvin, you know, was a big, uh, a bit, you know, John Calvin's commentaries. Matthew Henry was one that, um, that he referred to quite a bit. So, so he wasn't afraid. It wasn't, he wasn't just pulling this out of his own thought. Um, he, he was not, he did not hesitate to utilize other great preachers of his day and even of his past. But despite all of these heady things, one of the great quotes that I love is that uh, is that he said, you know, people would criticize him that he was too conversational, that he wasn't more uh, lofty in his preaching, that he was just kind of written off as this kind of, you know, the illiterate man, the working classes preacher. And, uh, and some even said he was vulgar in his preaching. I don't mean like cursing, but that he just, he didn't have an air of professionalism to him that Came, that we came to expect in that in that day and age of preachers, and he said uh, to his critics, he said, the, "The Lord Jesus did not say, feed my giraffes, but feed my sheep." Now, there's another great line. He did not tell me to put all of the food high up in the air. He told me to bring it down to the ground so that the sheep could eat. And um, that's a, it's a great metaphor. It's a great you could tweet that. I mean, that's got a punch to it. But it, there's a lot of wisdom and truth to that, that it should be, you know, the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood, as John 1 says in the message translation. It's here to stay. It's street level. And if it's not street level and accessible, I don't think he was trying to be simplistic. I think he was trying to be simple, clear, truthful, memorable, and Christocentric. That'd be the best way I could describe uh, Spurgeon and his preaching. So I'm going to shift this because you, um, I don't even remember if you were telling me this a little bit before we started recording or if it's been in this conversation. I think it was before we started recording, uh, but you also mentioned it in an email to me about this, just about his, well, you said his fainting fits or his depression. Um, As you said in the email, he had some honest and raw thoughts on how to keep preaching confidently when you battle depression. What it, I mean, because everything you've described to him now, he's a machine, right? He just like <laughs> cranks these out week after week. But obviously, he got pretty raw and vulnerable in some of that. What did that, because I think all of us have dealt with the days where you have the argument with your wife on the way to church, you know, or the yeah. night before and you have to preach, or you're just feeling in a funk yourself. Or so, what did that look like for him? How did he, what was his advice on that? Yeah, yeah, it was really good. I, and, and it was less practical. I mean, I walked away from that chapter feeling like here's a guy that understands people <laughs> and understands me and what I what I feel at times and less about here are the 17 easy steps to get out of it. But he would say this depression happens, whether it's capital D, you know, clinical depression or we just feel depressed or sad or down. It happens. So don't be surprised. That was his first advice to his to his um, his students. Um, he also said the reason why we shouldn't be surprised is that church work can be lonely. And so we should expect hardship because the Lord Jesus promised it. 
but also because our work is somewhat isolating. And he talked about the isolation that he experiences. Um, and he also said that depression will make you more a, a more kind and understanding pastor, which I thought was really, really good. I mean, I've heard Rick Warren say before that he never hires pastors that haven't failed or been deeply broken to his staff. The reason being is if you haven't failed or been deeply broken, you don't have a level of compassion, even if you want to, that you have when you fail and when you've been broken. So he said, it'll make you more kind and understanding of a pastor. Um, he said, neglecting your body will lead to depression. So take care of your body, which we know that through science today, but even 125 years ago, that's great advice. Take care of your body. Get out and walk. Think about what you eat and how you eat. Get out in nature. He said, it's good for the soul. He said, when I'm down and depressed, I will go in the woods and I will walk around. And when I come back, he said, it's just a good thing for the soul. But he also said something really interesting. He said, depression happens after a few different situations. So he said, watch for it when these situations happen. And don't be surprised when depression comes upon you. The first one is after a time of great success. Don't be surprised if you feel depressed after that. And I immediately thought about Elijah and the 450 prophets of Baal. I mean, that move alone sent Elijah into the Hall of Fame when it came to prophets. And yet, right after that, he says he's so depressed he wants to die. He's suicidal and depressed, right? So don't be afraid, or don't be surprised when it happens after a time of great success. Number two, um, don't be surprised when it happens during intense, long stretches of ministry hardship, right? That makes sense, but a long season of intensity. And number three, when a hard blow hits. There's some sort of tragedy that occurs. There's some sort of scandal that occurs. Don't be surprised that when that happens that you feel and, and you have a real bout with depression. Um, but he also said, don't be dismayed by soul trouble. And I, I take that to mean don't panic. You, you're, you're not as lonely as you think you are. Other people, this is you kind of have a case of the normals. Um, and he said, live day by day but, and don't put too much stock in feelings. He said, feelings are there, we should pay attention to them, but live day by day, and don't put too much stock in how you're feeling. Um, and then the last one, which isn't really a picker-upper when you're feeling down and depressed, he said, be content to be nothing, for that is what you are. <laughs> and I think he's just getting back to the identity of a preacher. Uh, uh, it reminds me of Nicholas von Zinzendorf, who was a huge proponent of the uh, the mission, American mission movement in the Moravians. The Moravians, which are big here on the uh, just north of Philadelphia in the Bethlehem, Nazareth, PA area. Zinzendorf was an amazing guy. He had lots of flaws, but he was an amazing guy. And he said, be ready to preach and die and then be forgotten. Hmm. And uh, I think there's that's in some that'll, sense, that'll get you out of bed in the morning. <laughs> but he was so sold on the idea of dying to ourselves and yeah. dying to, to, to Christ. We, we preach, we die, and then we're forgotten. I think that's in some ways as, as a sort of backhanded form of encouragement Spurgeon's trying to say, be content with being nothing for that's what you are. Don't think too highly of yourself. You know, Don't take too much stock in your emotions and know this is going to happen and don't be shocked when it occurs. Don't panic. Don't give up. But realize that you need to be content with being nothing because that's actually your identity. And um, that's not pop psychology that you'll see today at Barnes & Noble. But uh, I think you understood our identity, uh, what it means to be hidden in Christ as a preacher. Uh, Was was there much in the book that you just felt like just doesn't even apply now or is hopelessly out of date? I I think the fact that, you know, you chuckle a little bit when you, you know, take cayenne pepper and eat that to kind of clear a sore throat, you know, so you sort of translate into saying, well, maybe I'll just have honey in my tea in the morning if I've got a sore throat, you know. You know so I, think, some, I, I chuckle at some of that. I think my wife probably thinks that I eat way too much salsa. So <laughs> from now on, I'm just saying this is, I have to do Straight this from my throat in the sermons. So, I mean, there's a few of those things that I chuckle at. I, I certainly know that there would be a, a percentage of, of preachers that come from a more liturgical background that certainly would be upset with him being so down on liturgy. I, I see his heart behind what he's trying to say, but I still think that you can engage in liturgy in a way that's very life-giving and God-honoring and has flesh around the skeletal structure. So 
So that would be the one point, uh, the main point that I would look at and say, well, I'm not sure you, you need to bag the lectionary or, or a liturgy as, as much as you do. But, um, but no, I mean, I think that's the thing that shocked me is normally when you read something 125 years old, it's written in such a highfalutin language that you have to translate. It almost feels like Shakespeare, right? The these and the thous, and, and you kind of slog through. I think what shocked me is how accessible and how I wasn't slogging through and didn't need a dictionary to have next to me to read it. And I think just the opposite. I was shocked at how many of the principles still apply today. And I think that's why I love this book and why I would love for preachers to pick this up as a resource. Even if all you do is get a, you know, the free Kindle uh, version of it and skim through it, even if it would be great, even if there was just like a, I'm sure there's some summaries that we can find online very easily. And even just to get a few preachers together uh, over coffee or a meal sometime and just say, hey, or maybe a cigar to be more appropriate. And just to say, well, hey, maybe. what do you think about it? What, it what, what, how does this apply to your preaching today? Is there any principle here for us to apply this week or this season of our own preaching? So that's why I loved it so much is that very little of it did I disagree with or find outdated. Yeah. Um, we'll wind down, but any other, any other bit that I haven't asked about or, or talked about that you think is worth just tossing out there from this? Um, I, the, I just was so impressed by the illustrations of preaching. And he spends 50 pages talking about how to find illustrations, when to use them, how to use them. Um, write your own if, if you can't find one um, that, that suits. And um, again, it just master of metaphor. He, he said, it's like salt on your dinner. Use it in a way that flavors the meat, but don't forget it is not about the salt. It's about the meat. And I think that's a really good distinction. And he talked about a meal that someone had salted the food accidentally way too much and he couldn't even finish the meal. And he said, when we use illustrations, we should weave them throughout like salt on our meal. But if we use too many of them, it will be a bad taste in the mouth of our hearers. And I think there's uh, there's a lot to be said about that. And he goes through how it makes it interesting. It get people's attention. He says, rouse people's um people's feelings and people's emotions, but don't abuse that. So use it as a way, especially through thick, theoretical, maybe even somewhat boring doctrine. That's the best time to put salt on the meat. And he always said, read much, study hard, and look for metaphors everywhere. Look for these illustrations everywhere. And um, great line, he said, there ought to be some burr in every sermon that will stick to the pants of those who hear it. That's another great line, you know. Um, he's using an illustration, talking about illustrations. That's how good he is. But uh, um, yeah, a couple, couple last things as we're winding down and on the way of illustrations. You know, he said, use histories, current history, read the newspaper, ordinary things from everyday life. Like he talked about the carnival and a parade and something in there. Um, use local history, ancient history, religious history, you know, go back and study the church. And, and even natural history, what you see, you know, on a flower or a butterfly as you're walking around. But he also said, teach children. He said, when you teach Sunday school to kids, which might be really good for us as preachers who are hearing this today in our context, um, that, it's, that it's important for us to also get on our knees, our hands and knees and sit, in, sit um, cross-legged and to be able to just teach Sunday school, uh, to sit at squatty chairs and teach it because if we can't take what we're teaching and bring it to the level of kids in Sunday school, we probably don't know it well ourselves. And so I thought that was a really good thing. Surround yourself with kids and make sure you teach children. Uh, find the metaphors and illustrations that are used in Scripture and use those. He said there's a lot there, so use what's already in the Scriptures. Again, go for a walk and eavesdrop, like I mentioned, visit the sick. And he said if Jesus, and this was his main thrust why illustrations were so important, he said, if the Lord Jesus used them quite frequently, so should we. And, uh, you know, of course, Jesus is a master. I mean, he, I think he taught best because of object lessons, field trips, questions, and metaphors and stories. And I think uh, that's exactly what Spurgeon is saying here. Utilize the metaphors and the stories because Jesus did a lot. We're trying to emulate Jesus, so teach the way he did because it obviously impacted and changed people's lives. We have so much more access to illustration material. Yeah. You know, I mean, he had a newspaper, conversations, books. I'm sure there were other things that I don't, you know, have have my brain around from his culture. But between 
TV and books and Twitter and blogs and Google and, you know, all of the media and all of the resources and all that. Um, you know, in some ways I, I admire how intentional he was and it, but it also makes me wonder today how much more intentional we need to be because we can probably be really lazy mm. with our illustrative material because it's so easy to find stuff, but yeah, that doesn't. He, yeah. He, not only that, John, and I agree with you on that. He, which I think is good for us in an age of so much information. He said, have an information system for which to collect and to file for future reference and for quick reference. So he said, once you find them, doesn't mean you have to use them that week, but he has some sort of filing system that you can use for quick reference when you decide to use it. And I think that's good. I mean, we probably all have that, but just another reminder of how to prepare means I may get a cool story or a great conversation with somebody or read something in the news that may not be good right now, but man, two years from now, that's going to be gold. And uh, so he said, have a filing system for that. And um, yeah, just yeah. so much there. It's it's gold. He didn't have apps for that. We have apps. Yeah, unbelievable. <laughs> well, JR, thanks so much. I appreciate you uh, making the time to come back and be a guest again. It's kind well, of fun to hear your voice me. again. Yeah. yeah, it's it's a fun uh, experiment. I mean, I think you've always done sort of these first-person interviews, but, uh, I mean, man, you talk about an amazing Sermon Smith interview. If, if it were possible to have Spurgeon here on the podcast, would be amazing. But I think the next best thing is actually everyone doing an in-depth study of this book, Lectures to My Students, because it's exactly what it is. Before podcasts, he's basically giving us Sermon Smithing gems in his book. So. Yeah. Thanks for this experiment and trying it out. I, I hope it works. I'm going to call this one Charles Spurgeon via J.R. Briggs. <laughs> C.H. Spurgeon via J.R. Briggs. Yeah. Oh, there you go. There that's you go. Often, that's often how he signed his name. Yeah. 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 Well, thanks a lot. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Thanks, John. Thanks again for listening, friends. You can review the podcast on iTunes. That's a way to help get the word out because iTunes looks to see uh, what kind of reviews podcasts are getting as it makes recommendations to other potential listeners. And, of course, sharing the podcast on Twitter, Facebook, all of those places is always helpful as well, whether it be this episode or some other previous episode or just a link to SermonSmith.com overall. Thank you so much. 